Terry Carter, audiobook demo. Wild Minds by Reed Mittenbuehler, Chapter 14, I Have Become a Ghost. The Manhattan courtroom was noisy. An excited crowd of spectators drowned out the sound of the gavel trying to keep order. The Betty Boop trial had dragged out from days into weeks during the spring of 1934. Max Fleischer sat at the defendant's table across from the only man who seemed to want to be there less than he did, New York Supreme Court Justice Edward McGoldrick. Throughout the trial, McGoldrick watched the newspaper hacks turn his courtroom into a circus. They just couldn't take a trial about cartoons seriously. When the court stenographer interrupted the lawyers to ask how to properly transcribe Betty Boop's lyrics, they burst into rude laughter. Was it boop boop a doop, she asked, or just boop, followed by doo doo doo? The lawyers couldn't agree, bombarding each other with renditions of their own interpretations. It was an important matter to clarify since the lyrics were at the heart of the trial. Witnesses were then called to perform, but that only made things more awkward. When one of them suggested that the proper interpretation might actually be boo, boo, da doop, a new round of heated disagreement erupted. McGoldrick hushed the courtroom with his gavel, then ordered the stray boops struck from the record. Order restored. Nevertheless, the next day's papers had a field day with the proceedings. One described the analysis of Betty's singing as boop boop a doopery, as though this were some esoteric field of linguistics. Another headline called the fiasco, the boops heard around the world. The plaintiff in the trial was Helen Kane, a singer who claimed that Betty Boop was based on her and that Max Fleischer had stolen the idea. Originally from New York, Kane had traveled east from Hollywood for the trial. She wanted $250,000. If she won, Fleischer Studios would be ruined. Testimony by Robbie Robertson, Chapter 4 The first time the power of music really struck me was on the Six Nations Indian Reserve. I was about eight years old, sitting in a kitchen at the house on Second Line Road while a couple of relatives played guitar. It rang my bell. The sound, the rhythm, the fingers on the strings, the voices blending together in unison and then slipping into harmonies. My uncles and cousins were so lost in the music that it mesmerized me. Sometimes there would be a mandolin or a violin joining in with Iroquois hand drums and water drums. On the res, there was no other entertainment. Everything was homegrown. Nobody there had any money, honey, and it didn't matter. Things balanced out in other ways, through the wilderness, the grand river, the changing seasons, and always the singing and dancing. From my earliest impressions, I knew there was a deep beauty in this place. The water we drank straight from the well was cold and clear, and I never knew water could taste so good. We picked wild berries from the fields and grew sweet corn so tall you could get lost in it. Every day was a celebration of nature with the three sisters, beans, squash, and corn, like nothing I experienced back in the city. My cousins didn't climb trees, rather they would run up them. I studied their hands, their feet, trying to find the secret of this supernatural skill. Over and over I tried to keep up with them, most of the time falling on my butt, and once, when I was seven, breaking a wrist, the white bone itself jutting right out of my small hand. In the summertime, we would head over toward the railroad tracks like a ritual. 
stop at the water pump, splash a little water on your face, have a drink out of a tin cup. There was a path that led through a field of wild strawberries, and we would grab a couple of handfuls on the way. Once, my cousin Doug spotted a dried plant of some kind that was probably a type of wild tobacco, the Ontario Tobacco Belt being not far from Six Nations. Doug picked a few leaves, rolled them in his hands, retrieved a stray piece of newspaper, rolled the plant into a small square of it, lit, and smoked it. He might have been 11 or 12 at the time. With the heat bugs singing in the late afternoon, we stopped by a longhouse to hear an elder share a story. That turned out to be a particular highlight for me. When everyone had gathered round, an old man appeared out of the trees like a vision. With his walking stick, he pushed himself past everybody and into the longhouse, where he settled into a chair made of birch branches covered with deerskins. We gathered in front of him as he banged his walking stick twice on the wooden floor and began speaking, first in native tongue, like a short prayer of gratitude. Then, switching to English, he told the story of Hiawatha and the peacemaker, who brought the nations of Onondaga, Oneida, Cayuga, Seneca, and Mohawk together after years of war, and introduced the great law of peace. When he told that story, it sent a charge right through me, the cadence of his voice, the power, the violence, the righteousness. I only hoped someday I could tell stories like that. Ronan Farrow, Catch and Kill, Chapter 5, Kandahar A few days later, Harvey Weinstein was in Los Angeles, meeting with operatives from Black Cube. The operatives reported that they had been making headway in circling agreed-upon targets. Weinstein's lawyers had quickly covered the last payment for Phase 2A, but they had been sitting on an invoice for Phase 2B for more than a month. It took several tense exchanges before another payment was delivered, and the next, more intense, riskier stage of the operation began. Our reporting at NBC was growing more intense, too. Over the course of January, the Hollywood series took shape. I had begun to report out a story on rigged awards campaigns, along with one about sexist hiring practices behind the camera, and another about Chinese influence on American blockbusters. The adversaries in Red Dawn turned North Korean in post-production. Doctors in Beijing saved Iron Man while sipping Yili brand milk. The sexual harassment story was proving to be a booking challenge. One actress after another backed out, often after involving prominent publicists. It's just not a topic we want to talk about, went the responses. But the calls were kicking up dust, and Harvey Weinstein's name was coming up in our research again and again. One producer, Dee Dee Nickerson, arrived at 30 Rock for an interview about the China story. We sat in a bland conference room that you've seen on a hundred datelines, beautified with a potted plant and colored lights. Afterward, as McHugh and the crew broke down our equipment and Nickerson strode off to the nearest elevator bank, I trailed after her. I meant to ask one more thing, I said, catching up to her. We're doing a story about sexual harassment in the industry. You used to work for Harvey Weinstein, right? Nickerson's smile slackened. I'm sorry, she said. I can't help you. We'd reach the elevators. Sure, okay, if there's anyone you think I should talk to. I have a flight to catch, she said. As she got in the elevator, she paused and added, Just be careful.
On Tyranny, 20 Lessons from the 20th Century by Timothy Snyder. Lesson 12, Make Eye Contact and Small Talk. This is not just polite. It is part of being a citizen and a responsible member of society. It is also a way to stay in touch with your surroundings, break down social barriers, and understand whom you should and should not trust. If we enter a culture of denunciation, you will want to know the psychological landscape of your daily life. Tyrannical regimes arose at different times and places in Europe during the 20th century, but memoirs of their victims all share a single tender moment. Whether the recollection is of fascist Italy in the 1920s, of Nazi Germany of the 1930s, of the Soviet Union during the Great Terror of 1937-38, or the purges in communist Eastern Europe in the 1940s and 50s, People who were living in fear of repression remembered how their neighbors treated them. A smile, a handshake, or a word of greeting, banal gestures in a normal situation, took on great significance. When friends, colleagues, and acquaintances looked away or crossed the street to avoid contact, fear grew. You might not be sure, today or tomorrow, who feels threatened in the United States, but if you affirm everyone, you can be sure that certain people will feel better. In the most dangerous of times, those who escape and survive generally know people whom they can trust. Having old friends is the politics of last resort, and making new ones is the first step toward change. John Savage, 1966, A Quiet Explosion, Chapter 1, CND, Protest, and the Conspiracy of Silence. 1966 was a year of noise and tumult, of brightly colored patterns clashing with black and white politics, of furious forward motion, and an outraged, awakening reaction. There was a sense that anything was possible to those who dared, a willingness to strive towards the seemingly unattainable. There remains an overwhelming urgency that marks the music and movies of that year, counterbalanced by traces of loss, disconnection, and deep melancholy. But underneath all the sound and fury, and the moments of regret, lies a profound silence. This is not the silence of peace, of solitude, of sought withdrawal, or even meditation, although all of these states would be examined during that year. It's not a silence that exists within itself. It is a rupture, a prelude to something that is barely conceivable. This silence is an artificially created vacuum, a few instants of bone-shaking terror that turns the world inside out. You can hear traces of that silence throughout the year among the many thousands of records released by a rapidly expanding music industry. Pop was everything in 1966. It wasn't just the lifeblood of youth culture. It was a way of looking at the world. And, as such, it couldn't help but express the thoughts feeling, and values of a generation that was beginning to test its social, political, and perceptual power. But for the young, born in the 1940s and early 1950s, there were nightmares in their heads that they couldn't shake off.